All right, inside your worship booklet, you'll see a loose piece of paper here. It says Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. We are continuing our summer series in the Psalms, as we have been doing for the last handful of years, working our way psalm by psalm through the book of Psalms, also called the Psalter, which consists of 150 prayer songs, 150 song prayers that would have been sung by God's people throughout the ages and have been sung throughout the church. The New Testament, Jesus following church, yes, has sung all of these, really, and had have done so regularly until about the mid-1800s, when the psalms and psalm singing came upon hard times. I'm telling you that because the church of Christ... Old Testament and New Testament church sang whole psalms and sang all the psalms, including the one we're looking at today, which might be a little scary here in just a moment, because we are going to be reminded that we righteous will bathe our feet in the blood of the wicked. Yeah. What do we do with that? As Mike just prayed for us, how do we pray aright the breaking of the teeth of the wicked? What does that look like for us? Well, that's what we're going to explore throughout our time this morning. Um, I think what I'm going to do, um, it's not a long psalm, but I'm just going to read it as we go, um, and we will jump into this difficult psalm, but I think a glorious psalm once we see it aright. So Psalm 58. In a book titled, Sing a New Song, the subtitle is Recovering Psalm Singing for the 21st Century. Pastor theologian Dr. David Murray contributed, contributed a chapter in that book titled Christian Cursing? Question mark. I tried to get that with my voice flux there. Christian Cursing? Dr. Murray opens the chapter this way. He says, quote, How can we sing the Psalms when so many of them ask God to curse our enemies? Calling down curses on our enemies does appear to be contrary to the spirit and the letter of the New Testament. See, for example, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. If cursing psalms, often called imprecatory psalms, are sub-Christian or pre-Christian, as some allege, should Christians sing them at all? Should we restrict ourselves only to the quote-unquote Christian Psalms. Take a moment and answer that in your head. Should we just sing the the fluffy, happy psalms? Should we do away with these psalms of cursing, these imprecatory psalms? Dr. Murray goes on to argue, no, don't cut them off. Yes, they are Christian prayers, and yes, you should be praying like this. And I think Dr. Murray is right. And I think that's exactly what Psalm 58 is going to hold out for us this morning, and that is that imprecatory prayer can be a useful tool for the followers of Jesus in a world scarred by darkness, wickedness, and rebellion. Now, this might surprise you, this next sentence, Psalm 58 is not an imprecatory psalm. (laughs) So you're like, okay, well, that was weird. Why did you just do all this imprecatory language? Well, In theological classification, um, an imprecatory psalm is usually categorized as one that is imprecatory, cursing 
throughout it. Psalm 58 doesn't actually do that. Psalm 58 is categorized as a communal lament. A lament being a prayer in pain that leads to trust. We've been all over the laments throughout the 50s. This is kind of a slight break from a lament, but a slight break being that it curses the bad guys now. Psalm 58 is a communal lament that contains imprecatory verses. Are we tracking? It's not one of the few thoroughly and completely imprecatory psalms. In the book of Psalms, there are three of those. Completely, utterly, all the way through, beginning to end, imprecatory. If you're a note taker, it's 35, 69, and 109. Imprecatory throughout. Maybe surprising to you is that all three of those appear in the New Testament. All three of the completely and utterly imprecatory cursing psalms are quoted by the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Now, in addition to those three imprecatory psalms, again, all quoted in the New Testament, there are numerous other psalms that contain imprecatory verses, that contain little bits of curses here and there, and Psalm 58 is one of them. Again, for you note-takers, if you want to jot quickly, the psalms that include imprecatory verses, that include cursing, but are not cursing psalms throughout, check this out. 5, 7, 10, 28, 31, 40, 55, 58, 59, 70, 71, 79, 83, 137, 139, and 140. Friends, there is a lot of imprecation in the Psalms. There is a lot of cursing and damning in the Psalter. Therefore, we need to think through what that means for us. What does that mean for new covenant Christians seeking to follow Jesus? And that's how we're going to spend our time this morning. I'm going to walk us verse by verse briefly through Psalm 58 so that we understand what's going on here, that we get the the gist of what the psalm is after. And then I want to conclude with about four thoughts for how we can pray these, if we should. And I hope to convince you that we should. So, let's begin in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 58. I will begin in verse 0, which is, should be italicized in your insert. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a mictum of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. These first couple verses, we are not very far into Psalm 58 when we have a problem already, and that is, who is this psalm being written to? Who is this song being sung about? Namely, who are the you gods Do you indeed decree or judge what is right, you gods? Okay, that sounds a little odd. Now, I don't want to lose anybody here, but I do want to nerd out for just a moment. Your English Bible, your your translations, if using a faithful one, my favorite being the English Standard Version that we use here, but the NIV, New International Version, the New King James, the New American Standard, these are all good translations, are very solid and can be trusted. 
There are places that it's a little confusing as to which word we go with because, surprise, surprise, the Hebrew originally did not have vowels. It was a consonant soup. And later on, people who wanted to serve us put vowel points throughout the Hebrew so that we can better understand what it's going at. There are a few cases in which our old manuscripts have different vowels for a word. And sometimes, like this one, it changes how we go with you gods or not. It does not change the meaning of the psalm, as I'll show you. It's pretty easy. It's pretty clear what the psalm's going at. But if you had another translation, in place of the ESV's you gods, you might read, do you indeed decree what is right? O congregation, King James Version. You rulers, New International Version. You mighty ones, or you judges, or the New King James. Do you indeed decree what is right? You silent ones. So, Basically, there's two schools of thought here. The word is either silent, or those in silence, or it's you gods. Because the vowels, and those words are very close, just off by a vowel. The difficulties here are which one to go with. There's an entire manuscript tradition of which the King James and New King James follow that go with silent ones, because that's what the word says. We have since, since those were translated, found older manuscripts, more reliable in my estimation, closer to the original Greek and Hebrew, closer to Jesus, and those said gods. So which one do you go with? And if you go with gods, what the heck does it mean? The word gods can be used in Scripture and is for human leaders, for judges, Rulers, leaders, what we might call kings or presidents, can sometimes be called Elohim or El, gods. That could be this word here. Or is this referring to gods, which in the Old Testament can also be used to describe angels, at what we call angelic beings, creatures of the unseen realm, either good or bad. They are called Elohim. Gods, gods. So, I hope that was just fascinating. I don't want to nerd out. So here, here's the, the problem summarized. Is this psalm written to the silent ones? That is, people who are idly and silently standing by while rampant wickedness is all around them. I'm just going to hold my mouth shut and just watch. Although there's evil and murder and wickedness all around Maybe. Or is this psalm addressing divine, invisible, angelic forces with the you gods? Invisible, dark forces that are influencing the evil on earth? Maybe. Or, and I think most likely, this psalm is written to you gods, meaning human leaders. Human judges who are propagating injustice and wickedness. That's where I'm going with this. That's what the majority of the translations go with and commentaries go with. Now, I should say, as an aside, I do recognize, as I already mentioned, and I admit that the word gods is used to refer to angelic heavenly beings. And I interpret passages that way often when it comes up. But I just don't think that's what's going on here. 
I think this is an example of bad leaders, dirty rulers, sketchy kings. And these leaders are creating, or allowing at least, injustice. That seems to make the, re- the most sense out of the rest of the psalm, as we will now see. Verses 3 through 5 give us the nature. What do these wicked leaders look like? Verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Verse 4 here, what are these wicked leaders, these human leaders who are not ruling injustice? Injustice, sorry. They're not ruling aright. What do they look like? Serpents. The adder is a cobra. They're like the cobra that doesn't listen to the chanters who are trying to control the snake. They are just wicked, wild serpents. I think this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they listened to the voice of the Satan, the accuser, who is the devil, that, the devil, that ancient dragon. In Genesis 3.15, we have the first pronouncement of the gospel. When God, in judging Satan, judging the serpent, says there will be a seed come from the woman, and that seed that will come from the woman is going to crush and decisively kill you devil. But that seed from the woman will have his heel bruised in the battle that he is going to do against you. It is the first pronouncement of the gospel, often called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. And that verse is then traced throughout the rest of Scripture. But it's not just the first pronouncement of the gospel. Borrowing from my friend and the president of Indianapolis Theological Seminary, Dr. Nicholas Piotrowski, Genesis 3.15 is not just the first declaration of the good news of Jesus. Genesis 3.15 is the first declaration of all of history. It is the proto-historicus. You see, Adam and Eve fall. Eve and then Adam follows, listens to the serpent. They eat of the fruit. And the rest of the story immediately turn the page and you get a murder, an evil world, and a evil city. The storyline of the Bible puts all people into either the seed of the woman camp, those who are righteous and await the one from the woman's womb, or the seed of the serpent camp. That is, all who reject the God of Scripture and are therefore an enemy of God. Friends, all of human history... And all of the human race alive right now are either with the woman and her seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, or against him and therefore with the serpent and his wicked servants. And that, I think, is what's going on here. David is very aware of the first pronouncement of the gospel, and he's looking at the wicked kings and the wicked rulers The nations around him that don't know Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and he's saying they're with the devil. They're on team serpent, not team God. And it is the same right now. We just have more clarity 
because the seed of the woman has come. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, son of God, son of man. Are you on team Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning, and subduing the nations right now through the gospel, or are you against him? And if the latter, you are with the devil, the serpent. Now we get to the imprecation. Now we get to the curse. What do we do when we see wicked leaders who promote injustice and wickedness? Answer, verse 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Maybe that was hard to swallow. Some of it's kind of heavy, right? Especially the use of stillborn babies. Can you imagine yourself praying this? Maybe you're like, can I even say that in prayer? Maybe that's going through your mind right now. Can I even talk this way? I think the answer is yes. I might add with a slight reorientation or a caveat that is Jesus, but yes, these are Christian prayers. The New Testament prays the imprecatory Psalms. David here, friends, this this cursing is a call for God's intervention. He's saying, God, you break their teeth, strike them on the jaw. He's saying, I, God, am your anointed king. You've made promises to me. I am pursuing uprightness, though imperfect, and these menacing and wicked rulers are after me. God, break in. And he compounds his request. He gives a bunch of parallel statements here asking for God's judgment. Vanish away. Let them be blunted. Let them dissolve. Let them never see the sun. Sweep them away. Friends, this section of imprecation and cursing does what all imprecatory psalms do. They are asking for God to judge wickedness and make things right. Get wickedness out of the way so goodness can flourish. And now, it's important to note, too, if you need to read this again or or look at it later, this is not David's expression of hatred for others. And this is not some sick desire for revenge by the hands of David. He's not saying, Lord, give me the opportunity to really mess these people up. He's asking for God to do it. For God to take these people out of the way. And I think this is even more abundantly clear if you were to read the historical narratives. If you wanted to spend some time in the Samuels or the Chronicles. Remember David. He is very, very slow to wish harm on leaders that he believed God put in charge. How many times did Saul, was Saul handed over into David's hands, and David could have killed him. We looked at it a couple weeks ago in another psalm. And David's like, "Mm, I'm not touching him. 
I think God put that man there. And until God takes him out of the way, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. And when David, or I'm sorry, when Saul finally dies, who tried to kill David many times, David cries. And when Absalom, who leads a revolt against David, again, context of an earlier psalm that we've looked at this summer, leads a revolt against David, Absalom eventually dies and David laments and mourns. This is not just an angry dude eager to damn other people or look for sick revenge himself. He sees genuine wickedness and he says, God, do something about it. Psalm 58 is asking for the Lord to step in to judge these evildoers so righteousness can go forth. That's exactly the reminder that we get at the conclusion of the psalm. Verses 10 and 11. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Heavy. I think the, uh, the bathing the feet in the blood of the wicked could be another allusion back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Foot, blood, death, justice, righteousness finally prevailing. And in some sense, we are partaking with Jesus in the final making of all things right. When vengeance is poured out, we will rejoice. We will rejoice on that day. When behold, I'm making all things new. When, when the Lord will come. These banners behind us in the room. And I think this is a reminder that we need because we forget that. That Jesus is going to truly make all things right. So what do we do in the meantime? We try to make things right. We try to strong arm our situations. We try to make a uh, utopia on earth ourselves. We put our hope in politics or whatever it is. And we forget that God is righteous. He is the one and he alone that will make all things right. Until Jesus does come, we will not have utopia on earth. We will not have peace on earth. Although it's begun in Jesus... That reward language there, the righteous will rejoice. And we, mankind, will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. That reward is God himself. We get Jesus. We get everlasting joy at God's right hand and pleasures forevermore in his presence. But until that day when Jesus returns to make all things right, When he returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth and judgment of the devil and his followers are thrown into the lake of fire, what happens until then? How might we pray these curses? How can we pray for God's judgment like this psalm, but also pray for the conversion of lost people? Do we ever get to do that one? Um, I have four things for us to consider when it comes to imprecatory psalms in the life of a Christian. Four things to help us here. The first one, I want you to know imprecatory psalms should not be thrown out, nor should they be overused. Again, these are all ways I think Jesus kind of 
slightly reorients things for us, although these are Christian prayers. Don't throw them out and don't overuse them. Basically, what I'm I'm trying to get at here is a Christian balance of things. I want to avoid two extremes. On the one side, there is an extreme that wants to throw out these psalms. Friends, I'm slow to do this. C.S. Lewis really dropped the ball here. C.S. Lewis, who got most of his theology right and who I'm very slow to question, blunders big time here. In his reflection on the Psalms, he calls this psalm and other imprecatory psalms devilish, diabolical, terrible, and contemptible. And he says you'd be wicked yourself if you condone or approve that type of praying. He is wrong. And actually most of history says so. He also questioned their very inspiration. Just wrong. Dead wrong. Do not listen to him on that. Listen to him on a lot of other things, but not on this. You may be tempted to that extreme. Let's just take some scissors to the Psalms and get rid of the the angry ones. Do not do that. But I want to avoid the other extreme over here, and that is, I just want to damn everything. I'm dealing out curses left and right. You get imprecatory prayer. You get imprecatory prayer. Curse you and curse you. I don't like the way you voted. Down with you. You look weird. Damn you. No, we're not doing that. We're not overdealing these imprecatory prayers. These are not prayers that you just get to use willy-nilly anytime you cross someone who thinks differently than you. Especially if they're in the family of faith. These are not prayers for brothers and sisters. These are not prayers for brothers and sisters in Christ, friends. These are prayers for wicked evildoers. Wicked people in the world. So use them and use them wisely. Secondly, so don't avoid those extremes. Use them. Don't throw them out, but don't overuse them. Secondly, the imprecatory Psalms teach us how to live appropriately in light of the future. I've kind of hit on that, and actually, really, I would just point you back to our elder, Mike Spencer, who prayed. He did a really good job of that. In his prayer, as he was using some of this imprecatory language, he was reminding us that the things of earth are not ours. We tend to over-enjoy, over-splurge, over-enjoy Overuse, overwatch, we do binges on this and we do all of these things too much. Imprecatory Psalms remind us that this isn't everything. There's better yet to come. Let these Psalms remind us of that that is yet to come. They help us want rightly, they help us hunger and thirst for goodness and for rightness. Derek Thomas is a pastor on the East Coast in South Carolina area. In a chapter that he contributed to the same book that I quoted at the outset, says it well. He says, Imprecatory psalms, at their most basic level, are pleas for justice to be done and the right to be vindicated. They're a cry against the seeming unfairness of life in this world where good is penalized and wrong is given a status of honor. Everyone, Christians too, everyone knows what we moderns call the need for closure. 
when a terrible injustice has been done. We do not live in a world, we don't want to live in a world where the wicked prosper at so many levels. If you're like me, that's, that's true. I don't want to live in a world where wickedness prospers. I do not want to be in a world where good is penalized and wrong is given a status of honor. And guess what? The world we live in, at least in our Western and modern culture, does exactly that. They help us live a right for the world to come and to pray that world to come to invade more and more into the present. The third one, just briefly, I'm just going to pass over this. I do think there is a helpful self-awareness in the Psalms here. When you pray imprecatory Psalms or sing imprecatory Psalms, I think you, I think I, should make sure that we're not being like the ones that the Psalm is faulting. Lord, curse this person, break the teeth of the wicked, and you're doing the same thing they are. You're just praying the Lord punch you too. Let's use these as as prayers when we see wickedness, when we see injustice. Lord, your kingdom come. In one sense, it's an imprecatory psalm. Pray it. And in so praying, ask yourself, am I, is my heart just like the rulers, just like the leaders that this psalm is condemning? And fourth and finally, Friends, imprecatory psalms preach Christ to us. And they preach a Christ to us who helps us pray aright. Who can or who should we have in mind when we pray these psalms? I think we first begin with Jesus. Jesus is the one, friends, who in the gospel has begun the end 2,000 years ago in Jesus' life, his perfect life, his death as a criminal on the cross, and in his glorious resurrection, the cross and resurrection which stand at the center of human history, began the end. And it began the end in one main way, that is it purchased you. It gave you, it gave me a way to be made right with God. Because a sinless Savior died, my, your sinful soul can be counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. How is God the just just to look on Christ but pardon you? Because God the just put your sins on Jesus. And Jesus died the death and received the wrath of God that your sins deserve. That's how he began the end. That's how we can be made right with God. That's how we can say each week, forgiven, free, and restored because someone else got our hell and punishment. And that is good news. But Jesus' cross and resurrection also began the end. It began the end. And that same event did something for dark forces. That event was the crushing of the head of the serpent. In a moment in which Jesus breathed his last, I wonder if the serpent thought, I did it. He's dead. The Son of God is dead. 
But he burst forth from the grave three days later. And friends, it says that that Jesus in his resurrection disarmed the devil, bound him, disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Satan lost on Easter Sunday. And that is good news. Such that Paul, concluding Romans, says that as the gospel goes forth, as you church in Rome make more disciples and preach Christ, you are continuing to crush the serpent under your feet. We get to partake in the continued death of the enemy. How? Live ordinary life to God's glory. Have children and raise them up in the way that they should go. So even when they are old, they will not depart from it. Reach your neighbors with Christ. Be a good worker. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God and come to church. And you are doing some nasty warfare. The implications of these cursing psalms for us today, all of this could be concluded right here. For us as Christians, I think, one, we pray for unjust people, and we pray for their conversion. Yes, God gets glory when he judges them, when he breaks their teeth, and when we bathe our feet in their blood. But boy, God, you'd get a lot of glory if you'd make that king a follower of Jesus. We pray for their conversion. But friends, here's where the the, the imprecatory psalm is important. Lord, if you're not going to save them, break their teeth. Get them out of the way and bring somebody else who will let good flourish better. We pray for their conversion, and if God won't save them, we ask that the Lord remove them, blunt them, take them away. And the second thing, and here's the key for us, I think we have a sure way of praying these imprecatory psalms aright when we pray them against the forces of darkness that are behind, in, and around all the injustice that you see. What I mean by that is that school shootings, genocide, human trafficking, prostitution, murder, unjust kings, and on and on and on is not primarily about wicked people doing wicked things, though it is. There are forces, principalities, and powers in the unseen world around us who are deeply connected to all of those things. And when you see that, boy, can you start praying these psalms aright. When you see school shootings, genocide, human trafficking, prostitution, murder, unjust kings, on and on and on, you better see invisible things all around them. Yes, chemical imbalances. Yes, a sinner doing awful, wicked things. Yes, things are not right there. But you should see dark forces in the unseen realm influencing that for darkness. God, break their teeth. God, vanish them away. How do we use and utilize imprecatory psalms? I think the safest and easiest way to do that, friends, is to use them against the enemy of God's people. The serpent and his dark forces. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians 6. And I'll conclude with this. 
the famous armor of God passage. We are to put on the armor of God, and it includes things like the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, the shield of faith, and arrows in which we are shooting the evil one. That passage starts like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The bad guys in your life are not other humans. But we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. How does he finish the sentence? Therefore, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And friends, he is thinking of the Psalms. Pray at all times with all prayers and supplications. Don't skip over Psalm 58. Use it against dark forces of this world. Let's pray. God, you are kind and you are good to us. As we begin to think about and move in the direction of coming to your table, the Lord's table, be with us. Help us think aright about these cursing psalms and use them wisely in our lives because they can be a great tool, a great asset for us who live in a fallen world. In your name, amen. Friends, as we do each week, we are going to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper now, a table of warfare, a table of action, a table that preaches a curse to us, And that is that Jesus became a curse for us on the tree. And so if you are a Christian, you are invited to come and to partake of this meal, this warfare meal, and and to be reminded that what we see all around us is not all there is. There is a lot going on in the invisible realm around us. If you are a Christian who has entrusted yourself to Jesus alone for salvation, you're invited to this table. We usually say we want you to be a part of a gospel-preaching church. If that is you, come. And New City here will exit the rows to the side.